You know, it's garage sale season. Have you noticed driving around? This weekend is the garage sale here at the church. I encourage you to come on out and support our Sunshine Seniors. And this past weekend, our neighborhood where my family and I live, it was their garage sale weekend. It's nothing like when Radisson does it where, oh, God have mercy on anybody who tries to drive through Radisson when they're having their garage sale. But, uh, but we have a little garage sale where we live over in Pine Gate. And we've never done one before, but my daughters were very uh, passionate and determined that we have a garage sale. Uh, they just wanted the experience. And so we said, all right. So we, we did a garage sale last couple of days. We didn't sell very much, and we brought everything else over here to sell this weekend. But I don't like hosting garage sales. And the reason why I don't like hosting garage sales is because I hate negotiating prices. I hate hassling, bartering, and bargaining. It just isn't in me. And part of my job is I sign 15 to 20 pretty big contracts every year, and it's the least favorite thing I do. I don't like it. I know some people live for it. Like, some of you just get energized thinking about bargaining and bartering in an open market or at a garage sale. I, I don't like doing it. I'm terrible at it. I'm the worst negotiator. Someone's like, this says $10, but I have 10 cents. I'm like, oh, okay, that's fine. That's fine. Take it. Like, I'm terrible at it. To make matters worse, have you noticed that there are professional garage shoppers? Professionals. They know exactly what they're looking for, and they know exactly how to get it. And I know that the professionals, because they're the ones that are there when you're not even set up yet. You know, like the garage sale started at 9, it's 8.45, I'm dragging the tables out, and, and they're already looking through all of my stuff, and I want to be like, I'm not even set up yet. But they're there, because they, they need to get first dibs on everything, and they know how to hassle. Some of you, you, you love that, like you love, you love bartering. I have some friends that love doing it. They love doing it so much that they don't simply restrict themselves to doing it in places like garage sales and um, in open market. I mean, they try to do it like in real stores, like in the mall, like brick and mortar stores. And I'm like, this isn't a garage sale. What are you doing right now? You can't just walk up to the counter and say, can I get this for less? <laughs> well, some people are just not afraid to make those requests. I, I don't have it in me. I don't like negotiating. And negotiation is basically, you do this for me and I will do this for you. You give this to me and I will give this to you. And we're in this series from the book of Judges called Broken Heroes. And so far we've looked at Ehud, the unexpected deliverer, Deborah, the singing prophetess, Gideon, the hiding hero, and last week, Samson, the strong weakling. And this morning, we're actually going to go out of order. We're going to go to the judge that's before Samson, and his name is Jephthah. And Jephthah, we're going to call him the negotiator. Jephthah is the negotiator. And as we study his life, we're going to see that his life is really defined by three key negotiations. He negotiates with his people, he negotiates with his enemies, and he negotiates with God. He negotiates with his people, with his enemies, and with God. And as we look at his life and we learn from this story, something to be wondering and asking ourselves is this, can we negotiate our way through life? Well, some of you are very good at it. You negotiate your way, it's your job. You're negotiating all the time. But even in your relationships, you've learned how to negotiate your way through life. Some of us are very gifted at it and able to, but can you really negotiate your way through life? And can we negotiate with God? Do we have that option? And so Jephthah, 
We're going to look first at his negotiation with his people. Now, we meet Jephthah in Judges chapter 11, and right off the bat in verse 1, it's like good news, bad news. This is what we learn. Now, Jephthah, the Gileadite, was a mighty warrior, but he was the son of a prostitute. So right off the bat, qualifier, disqualifier. He's a mighty warrior, but he's the son of a prostitute. Gilead was the father of Jephthah. And Gilead's wife also bore him sons. So Gilead has a wife also, and she has sons for him. And when his wife's sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out and said to him, you shall have no inheritance in our father's house, for you are the son of another woman. Then Jephthah fled from his brothers and lived in the land of Tob. And worthless fellows collected around Jephthah and went out with him. So right off the bat, what do we learn about Jephthah? We learn that he doesn't have the greatest or, more re- or most respected family history, right? The combination of his mother's profession and his father's decision is widely known by everyone. And for that, it's held against him. And I would say unfairly. How is that his fault? but it's, it's held against him. And his brothers, his, his half-brothers, look at him and go, now you're not one of us. In fact, it, it, it's almost certain that his mother, in addition to her profession, she was a Gentile. So they actually looked at him like he was some sort of a, forgive the term, but this is what they would have thought, some sort of a half-breed. He wasn't as, he wasn't as good as them. And so as they get older, Jephthah's brothers, I just picture them being these bullies who are just always picking on him and calling him names and making him feel terrible for something that isn't his fault at all and really shouldn't disqualify him and doesn't in any way invalidate who he is as a person. But his brothers bully him. They say, listen, you're not getting any of the inheritance because you're not really part of our family. And he runs off. And when he runs off, he runs off to this land called Tob. And it says that he ends up surrounded by what the Bible calls worthless fellows, worthless fellows. What this means is that he really got caught up in the wrong crowd. He got caught up with people who were doing the wrong things. In fact, some people say Jephthah, at this point, is really living a life of organized crime. He's a part of a gang, so to speak, that goes around and does things. They beat people up. They take their money. They're they're sort of like this sort of gang. Almost think of like a mafia sort of mentality. It's interesting because this part of Jephthah's life actually is probably where he became a great warrior, and a great negotiator. If you're in a life of crime, if you're in the mafia or a gang, you have to learn how to do both of those things. And it's in this season of life that Jephthah learns to fight and negotiate. And we keep reading in verse four, it says this. After a time, the Ammonites made war against Israel. And when the Ammonites made war against Israel, the elders of Gilead, now Gilead, remember, that's where Jephthah was cast out from. They went to bring Jephthah from the land of Tob. And they said to Jephthah, come and be our leader that we may fight against the Ammonites. Now, we know that the Israelites are in serious trouble now. Why? Because they're going to Jephthah. The same guy that they kicked out, that they cast out, that they ostracized, that they isolated, that they mocked, now they run to him and say, we need your help. We need you back. And they're in bad shape. Now, how did they get in this position? Well, in the previous chapter, we see that Israel is again worshiping and serving false gods. And actually, in Judges chapter 10, it gives this tremendous list of the types of gods that the Israelites are now worshiping. And what you realize as you read through the list is that the Israelites are worshiping the gods of every single 
people group or nation that has been defeating them. So they get defeated by the Canaanites and they end up worshiping the gods of the Canaanites. They get defeated by the Moabites and they end up worshiping the gods of the Moabites. And so God is sick of this again because they keep turning to other gods instead of the true God. And it says in verse 7 of chapter 10 that he sells Israel into the hands of the Philistines and the Ammonites. And it says that they crushed the people of Israel for 18 years. So this is 18 years of just being tormented by the Philistines and the Ammonites. And we see here this same old cycle, and we've talked about this before in the book of Judges. They serve God, but then they turn away from God. And when they turn away from God, they get into slavery and bondage. And then they come back to God and say, God, would you rescue us? And again, it's Israel says, we have sinned against you because we have forsaken our God and we've served the Baals. Now in the past, at this point, God would normally say, okay, I'm gonna raise up a deliverer. But God actually says no this time before he says yes. This is actually in a negotiation also between God and the people of Israel. And God reminds Israel what he's done. He says, I saved you from Egypt. Did you forget? I've saved you from the Amorites, the Ammonites, the Philistines, the Sidonians, the Amalekites. And God is just listing all these people who they oppressed you, you cried out to me, and I saved you out of their land. And then look at what God says to the people of Israel in Judges chapter 10, verse 13. He says, yet you have forsaken me. You've turned your back on me and you've served other gods. Therefore, I will save you no more. Go and cry out to the gods whom you have chosen. Let them save you in your time of distress. God's saying, you love these gods so much, let them save you. You trust in them, let's see what they can do for you now. You know what God is recognizing here? He's recognizing that in the hearts of the Israelites, this is not true repentance. They're not sorry for their sin. They're sorry for the consequence of their sin. They're bummed out about what life looks like, but the sin actually hasn't broken their hearts. They think we've broken God's rules, and God's saying, no, you broke my heart. You broke this relationship. It's much different. The Israelites are looking for a rescuer, not a ruler, not someone to come and tell them how to live their lives, just someone to get them out of trouble. In other words, they are using God to try and get something else, right? What do they really want? They want deliverance. They want safety. They want comfort. They want their families to be okay, and they're using God to get that. And listen, whenever you and I do that, because I think we do that sometimes, whenever we look at God and say, you're going to help me get something else, whatever that quote-unquote something else is, you know what? That's your true God. That's your true God. You're going to God saying, God, give me this, and you're not actually praying to your true God. You're praying for your true God. Give me this. Your true God is comfort or safety or deliverance. I'll serve you and I will follow you if dot, 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 dot. Well, whatever you say next is your idol. It's your true God. It's who you really worship and adore. It's what you crave and want most. This past uh, Saturday or Friday, when I was, we were having the garage sale. It was a beautiful day, of course. And I was sitting out there with shorts, T-shirts, sunglasses, loving the day, holding little Madeline, our three-year-old, and a lady pulls up in a car to our driveway and gets out of the car to come shop. And she leaves her music running. She's got her windows down and her music running. And she's got it to a country music station. And she's playing some song like, I love the way you love me or something like that. It's some sort of country love song. If you've heard one, you've heard them all. But, um, and, 
it, it, was, it was a nice song. And uh, so as the song is playing, and she's playing it really loud. Like, I almost told her to turn it down because it was like nine in the morning. But as she's playing it, I'm holding Madeline and just kind of like uh, playing around. I said, let's dance, Madeline. And so I take, I take her right hand with my left hand, and I'm kind of holding her, and we're dancing like this. And, and, I'm, and I'm watching her through my sunglasses, and she's, she's like staring into my eyes. And she's, it's like so sweet, and so loving, and so like she's adoring me, and I was like, wow, this is like a real moment, (laughs) and then I realized she's watching her reflection in my sunglasses. (laughs) She is looking at me, but she loves herself. God is saying to Israel, you're looking at me, but you love yourself, And when we go to God and say, God, I need this, and if you give me this, I will be faithful to you, what you're saying is, I'm looking at you, but I love something else, myself or or what I need. And so God isn't going to give them what they think they want because he knows it will ultimately destroy them. God knows this is all happening, that they're using God to serve their own needs. In verse 15, things begin to change. It says, the people of Israel said to the Lord, we have sinned, now look at this phrase, do to us whatever seems good to you. Only please deliver us this day. So they put away the foreign gods from among them, and they served the Lord, and he became impatient over the misery of Israel. I love how that is written. God became impatient over the misery of Israel. He's like, all right, I'm not going to put up with their misery. I'm going to get them out of this. But the key thought here is that it says, they say to God, and this is different than what they said before, do to us whatever seems good to you. Now they're saying, we think what we know is good, but we trust you. Whatever you think is good. We're looking to you. And so now this brings us back to where we were in verse 4. The Ammonites are making war against Israel. And the elders of Gilead, they need a warrior leader. They need a deliverer. And so they run to the, they remember Jephthah. And they're like, Jephthah, oh yeah, the half-breed son of the prostitute. But he's a great warrior. He's a great warrior. And, and, and we've heard stories about him and his crew and the things that they're getting done in the land of Tob. And so they run to him. And here's the first negotiation that we see in Jephthah's life. He negotiates with who? It's his own people. And this is what happens. Jephthah says to them, hold on, hold on. Didn't you hate me? <laughs> Didn't you drive me out of my father's house? He's reminding them. Now, this is a negotiation tool, right? He's like basically raising the stakes and saying, you're asking me for something. Can I remind you of what you've done to me? How can you come to me now that you're in trouble and ask this question? This is how the negotiation begins. And then they say back to him, well, this is actually, they're very honest. This is exactly why we've come to you, because we're in trouble. We've got to fight against the Ammonites. But if you lead us, you will be our head over all of, the, all of the people of Gilead. So they're now negotiating back to him, saying, if you do this, we'll make you the head of our tribe. And Jephthah says back to them, he actually raises the stakes. He says, I don't just want to come and lead you into battle. He says, if you'll bring me home again. If you'll bring me home again. That's significant. He's saying, I don't want to just be a hired hand that comes in and leads you into battle. I want you to bring me home. I want to be part of the people. And so they say, okay. He says, if you bring me home again and the Lord gives the Ammonites into our hands, then I will be your head. And so the elders say back to them, the Lord be witness between us if we do not do as we have just said. And verse 11 summarizes it this way. So Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead and the people made him head and leader over them. And Jephthah spoke all his words before the Lord at Mizpah, which means he gave a vow, there was a ceremony. 
It's interesting. They actually made him the head and the leader before he defeated the Ammonites. And all he asked for was, if this happens, then make me the head and bring me home. And so this is his first negotiation. He's negotiating with his people, and he wins, right? When we say he wins, he wins this negotiation. They bring him back, and they make him the head and the leader, which is remarkable considering his backstory. He's not a full Jew. And they bring him back, and they make him the head and leader. Let's look at his second negotiation. The second negotiation is with his enemies. Now, they've asked Jephthah to lead them into battle, but Jephthah is smart. He says, listen, if there's a non-violent way out of this, I'm in. We don't have to fight. Let's not always fight. And so even though they've asked him to lead them into battle, before he fights, he tries to what? Negotiate. And here he is negotiating. And it says in verse 12 that Jephthah sent messengers to the king of the Ammonites and said, what do you have against me? What's your beef, basically? That you have come to me to fight against my land. And the king of the Ammonites answered the messengers of Jephthah and said this. Here's his reason. Because Israel, on coming up from Egypt, took away my land from the Arnon to the Jabbok and to the Jordan. He's putting the parameters around the land. He says, now therefore, restore it peaceably. So the king is saying, we're going to fight you because when God delivered you out of Egypt, and this is the story of Moses, the 10 plagues, getting, he said, when you were coming out of Egypt, you took our land from us. We want it back. And so now Jephthah enters into a negotiation with this king, with his enemy. And Jephthah basically uses three arguments. And the first argument he uses we'll call the historical argument. And the historical argument is basically first thing Jephthah does is he gives this king a history lesson. He says, hold up. Your, your history is a little, bit, a little bit off. And he goes and says, he tells the whole story. I'm not going to tell you the whole story, but basically he says, we didn't attack you. We actually sent messengers to your king back then and said, can we just pass by peacefully? We don't want anything to do with you. Can we just go through your land to get to the other side? And they said, no way. And then they attacked Israel. And then Israel defended themselves and defeated them, and then they took their land, okay? So his first argument is a historical argument. He's saying, you got your history wrong. We didn't come and attack you and take your land. We came to come peacefully. You attacked us, and then because you attacked us, we fought you, and that's how we got your land. But then he shifts from what we'll call the historical argument to the theological argument. Now he's talking about God, and this is what he basically says in this part of his argument of his negotiation. You can't ask for this land back because God gave it to us. Now that sounds, that might sound crazy to your ears because you're like, who could possibly say that? But it wasn't crazy to their ears back then. In the ancient Near Eastern culture, all people groups, regardless of what God they served, basically believed that when a battle happened, the winning side was backed by the better God or the stronger God or the more powerful God. They saw all their wins and losses as the result of divine activity. And so he's actually making appeal based on a theological worldview that he shares with the king. And he says, your God has given you your land. We're not asking for that. Our God has given us this land. How can you ask us for it? This is a divine thing. And then the third argument that he makes is what we'll call a legal precedent argument, where basically he says the previous king, whose name was Balak, king of Moab, he never made this an issue. Why are you? So he's going to the legal precedent. All these years, there's been other kings. They've never made this an issue. How come you are? And he summarizes it basically in verse 27 by saying, I've not sinned against you. We haven't sinned against you. You're doing a wrong against us 
by trying to attack us. Now let's look at how the king responds. In verse 28 it says, But the king of the Ammonites did not listen to the words of Jephthah that he sent to him. Okay, so he starts by negotiating with his people. That's the first negotiation. And he what? He wins. Now his second negotiation, he's negotiating with his enemies. And what? He loses. He really loses this negotiation. And now we're going to really get to the meat of the story, the third negotiation, where he negotiates with God. And I'm just going to give you a spoiler alert up front. He wins and loses with God. So he wins with his people. He loses with his enemy. But in his negotiation with God, we're going to see he wins, but he also loses. He loses way more than he thought he was going to lose. In the very next verse, after the king says that we're going to fight you anyway, it says in verse 29 that the spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah. Now, this is cool because in the Old Testament, whenever the spirit of the Lord comes upon an individual, it's for a specific task and it's a guarantee of success. They're not going to fail. And they know when the Spirit of the Lord has come upon them. Now, one thing we have to understand is that in the New Testament, the time that we live in, when the Spirit of God dwells within us, it's because we've placed our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And he dwells within us and he stays within us. And the presence that we sang about this morning, we don't necessarily have to go to a place anymore to experience the presence of God because the same Spirit that raised Christ from the dead now dwells in you. We still gather to celebrate his work in one place, but the idea that we got to go into a building to experience his presence is an Old Testament way of thinking. It's not, it's not today. But in the Old Testament, when the Spirit of the Lord came upon a person, it would come and it would leave. And it would come specifically for an assignment. And Jephthah's assignment was to lead the Israelites into victory over the Ammonites. All right? So the Israelites over the Ammonites. And so the Spirit of the Lord comes upon him. And in a sense, I want you to hear this, the battle's already won at this point. As soon as the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah, game over. Bad guys lose. But look at what Jephthah does here as he tries to now negotiate. A life of negotiation. A lifetime of negotiating. And so he thinks, I better negotiate with God also. Look what happens. Verse 30 says this. Jephthah made a vow to the Lord. It's a promise. And he said, if you will give the Ammonites into my hand then whatever comes out from the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. Jephthah says, let's negotiate, God. You give me a victory, and I will kill and burn whatever comes out of my house. It's random. He doesn't know who or what is coming out of his house. He's just saying, whatever it is, as an act of great devotion to you, this is what I promise you if you'll give me victory. He goes on and he wins the battle. He was going to win the battle anyway, but he wins the battle. It says that he struck them from one neighborhood to the It's funny the way the Old Testament says it here. It's like he beat them across the, across the span of 20 cities. Like from this city to this city, he just beat the tar out of them. And with a great blow, he defeats them. And the Ammonites were subdued before the people of Israel. So Jephthah gets the victory. And Jephthah goes to return home. And he comes home, and as he gets near his home, the first person out of his house is his daughter. His only daughter, his only child, comes out of his house singing and dancing with a tambourine. Singing because her dad is a mighty warrior, and he's won a victory, and he's secured a home for them. And they're back with aunties and uncles and everybody. They're back with the Gileads. They're not, they're not outcasts anymore. And so she comes out to celebrate, and he sees her coming, and it says this, 
As soon as he saw her, he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low, and you have become the cause of great trouble for me, or to me. For I have opened my mouth to the Lord, and I cannot take back my vow. And she said to him, My father, you have opened your mouth to the Lord. Do to me according to what has gone out of your mouth, now that the Lord has avenged you on your enemies, on the Ammonites. The daughter goes on to say, just give me two months to go up into the mountains with my friends. And this is a term that's from Scripture. She says, so that I can mourn my virginity. Now, what that really means is, she's saying, so that I can grieve that I'll never be a mom, that I'll never have a family, that I won't extend the lineage. So let me go and grieve that I'm never going to do those things. And then I'll come back after two months. And after two months, she returns. And this is how the story ends in verse 29. It says that, or 39. At the end of two months, she returned to her father who did with her according to his vow that he had made. Okay. So you're probably thinking two things. First, great text for Infant Dedication Sunday. Wonderfully chosen. (laughs) But secondly, you're probably asking yourself, did this really, did he really sacrifice his daughter? I mean, yeah, he made a promise, but we make promises all the time and break them. I make promises about what I'm not going to eat almost every week and break them repeatedly. So did he really do this? And my answer is it's hard to say. It's hard to know. But for those of you that are, your stomach is in knots right now thinking about this story, there actually are some very good reasons to believe that he did not sacrifice his daughter. And many commentators believe that what he really ended up doing was dedicating her for the rest of her life to the service of the Lord. She would never marry, she would never have children, and for the entirety of her life, she'd be dedicated to God's service. Think almost like a convent, almost like a nun. Basically, that's what some commentators say. And, and, and it's not just so that we feel better about the story. There actually are some very good reasons to believe this. I want to I share some reasons with you that people say that that. Either he never actually intended to sacrifice her, or he did intend to sacrifice somebody, but once he saw it was her daughter, he changed his plan and did something different. He dedicated her to the Lord. Here's, here's eight reasons, and I'll do this super quick. When he made the vow, did you notice that he said, whatever comes out of the door, not whoever? And he refers to it later as it, not he or she. And so some people say, Jephthah never intended it to be a human. There maybe were domesticated animals or animals that lived on their property. And he said, whatever animal comes out first, I will sacrifice to you. But his daughter comes out first, and now he has to come out with another plan. So he says, whatever. He doesn't say whoever. In the same verse, he said, they, this whatever shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up as a burnt offering. Well, the Hebrew conjunction there, the word and, it actually can be interpreted and. It can also be interpreted or. It just depends on the context, however the translator wanted to interpret it. So Jephthah could have made this his vow. When I come back, whatever comes out of the house first shall be the Lord's, or I will offer it up as a burnt sacrifice. So he's giving himself an option. If it's a person, they're going to be the Lord's for a lifetime. If it's an animal, I'm going to sacrifice it as a burnt offering. Now, the other reason, some, here's some other reasons why he probably did not sacrifice his daughter. And this is probably the one that you've thought of immediately. This type of sacrifice is forbidden in God's law. God is not interested in human sacrifice. So this is clearly forbidden repeatedly in Leviticus chapter 18, in Leviticus chapter 20, in Deuteronomy chapter 12, in Deuteronomy chapter 18. Jephthah 
knew the law and history of the people of God. How do we know that he knew it? Because remember the long speech he gave to the king in a second negotiation. He knows, this, he knows their history very, very well. And so he would have known that this type of sacrifice is forbidden. Another thing is that there's no Levite, no priest would have officiated at the sacrifice. They simply would not have done this. And Jephthah was not a Levite. He was not qualified by family line to serve as a priest. Here's a couple more reasons why he may not have sacrificed his daughter. Number five, any vow that would end in sin was not binding according to the law of God. There actually was a law in Leviticus 5, 4 to 6, where if, it was, if a vow was going to result in sin that would not please God, the Levitical laws provided for such instances to not fulfill your vow. Human sacrifice was an abomination, and Jephthah should not have followed through with killing his daughter. Number six, there is an alternative established in the Old Testament law and seen in other examples. Instead of sacrificing, a person or a thing might be dedicated to the Lord for a lifetime of service. Exodus 20, 1 Samuel 1, Luke chapter 2. Also, this text indicates that the daughter asked for time to mourn. Why? Because she was never going to marry. That's, that's another way of interpreting that phrase, let me go grieve my virginity. She's grieving that I will never marry. She was not looking to death, but to a celibate life dedicated to selling the Lord. She wouldn't have mourned dying that way, but she mourned that she was going to live that way. And that this still is tragedy for this family, because it's the end of their lineage. Remember, she is his only child. And then here's another reason why Jephthah may not have actually done what... And by the way, the text is very vague, right? Did you, when we read that, it says, He did with her according to his vow that he had made. It didn't say he sacrificed her as a burnt offering, which the author could have been very clear. The author is not very clear here. Here's the other thing about Jephthah. He's listed in Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11 is a list of men and women with great faith. And Hebrews chapter 11, verse now, they're not perfect people. So he's listed right with other people who have done terrible things like David and, and, and Samson. But in Hebrews 11.32, as an example of great faith, Jephthah is listed with Gideon, Barak, Samson, David, Samuel, and the prophets. And here's the thing. You and I today cannot say with certainty what happens at the end of this story, but they knew because it was that, they were that much closer to the history of their people. And this is a story that would have been passed down through oral tradition before it was ever written. And so the people of Israel would have known. And so under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the author of Hebrews lists Jephthah right in here. So these are just some reasons why he may have done something different. He may have dedicated her to the Lord for her life. It must be said that there are legitimate counterarguments to everything I just said. So he may have done what we fear he did. One thing we have to remind ourselves is this, that Judges, the book of Judges, is not a look at humanity at its best. The book of Judges is a look at humanity at its absolute worst. And as the book proceeds, and this is the second to last judge, it gets worse and worse and worse. We've said this many times too, that Judges is descriptive but not prescriptive. It's telling stories about what happened, but it's certainly not saying this is how we should live or this is how we should do it. So this is a difficult text to, to ask and to answer questions about. Did he do it? Did he didn't do it? But the danger actually of this text is this, that we won't ask the most important question. The most important question is not did he do that or did he not do it? The most important question for you and I this morning is simply this, why did he make that vow? What is wrong with him? Why did he make that sort of vow? 
And the reason why he made that vow is going to give us real insight into our own hearts. So listen carefully. He gave that vow because even Israel's deliverers were still infected with an idolatry mindset. And what we see when he makes that vow is a merging, it's a bringing together, it's a syncretism of true worship and false worship. He's worshiping the true God, but he's using the methods of false worship to do so. Because in every other idolatrous nation in that time, they actually did do human sacrifice. And not only did they do human sacrifice, but human sacrifice was seen as the greatest sacrifice, the greatest act of devotion. Human sacrifice in other religions, not the Jewish Hebrew religion, but in other religions, it was how you paid off a god. You, you, it's how you, because there was no greater price. There was no greater value. And they believed that the shed blood of a human being would calm the nerves of their gods, would appease their gods. And so when he makes this vow, he's essentially confusing which God he serves. And he's trying to use something that the other people think work on their gods to try and work on the one true God. He's trying to appease God with this promise. And, you know, certain people can only be appeased with certain things, right? This, this past Wednesday morning, my wife and I brought our youngest child in to the hospital. She had a, it wasn't an emergency or anything. It was a regularly scheduled MRI. She, the way she was born, because of some issues, they have to do MRIs every now and then to check the fluid levels in her head. And so we take her in for the MRI. And, you know, if you have an MRI done, you can't eat, you can't drink, which is terrible enough. But if you're a baby and you can't really understand it, it's even worse. And so we bring Madeline in, and she's doing really well. And they, they put this little mask on her so that she's breathing in this, water smell, this watermelon-scented smoke that makes her fall asleep. And then they do the IV, and then they... Anyway, they, they do the MRI. And she comes out of the MRI, and she had a little bit of a cough. And I guess she coughed her... After everything was done, when she was in the recovery room, she coughed herself awake a little bit earlier than they wanted her to be awake. Like, the sedation should have lasted for another 10 minutes, but she coughed herself awake, which meant she was angry. I mean, I've not seen her this angry. Her face was so red. She was swinging her arms around and everyone who walked in the room and said something, Madeline would yell out, shut your mouth. Like my, my three-year-old, my three-year-old is in there yelling at the doctors and the anesthesiologists and the nurses, yelling at them over and over. Shut your mouth, shut your mouth. I was like, horrified. I was like, oh, God. <laughs> but there was one thing. We knew that there was one thing that would appease her wrath. And I risk saying it right now because Aaron may not have any with her and it's going to make her miserable, but it's M&M's. M&M's. And so as soon as... as <laughs> she heard it. She heard it. She, she, Aaron's in trouble now. I'm in trouble now. And so as soon as we said that, like when we get out of the hospital, she doesn't want it, but you know, she ate a couple of those and it's just... It appeased her. It, it appeased her wrath. It made her happy. And in the Old Testament, these, these religions thought the way to appease God, the greatest act of devotion, the most efficient and effective way to appease God is human sacrifice, the blood of a human. Now, don't miss this because here's what Jephthah tries to do. Here's the answer. Here's why Jephthah makes this vow. Jephthah tries to secure what God has already secured, Amen. right? He's trying to secure a victory that God has already secured. He tries to secure what God has already secured, and he does this by promising to provide 
what only God can provide. Let me say that again. Jephthah tries to secure what God has already secured by promising to provide what only God could provide. Now, this whole story, as we've been talking about Jephthah, you might feel like you have nothing in common with him. But this is where we learn we're actually all just like him. You and I are just like him because Jephthah tries to secure what God has already secured by promising to provide what only God can provide. And here's what it means for you and I this morning, simply this. You and I spend so much energy trying to secure what God has already secured by trying to provide what God has already provided. This is the battle in your heart and my heart. Trying to secure what God has already secured by promising to provide what only God can provide and what God already has provided. Now, what are we trying to secure in our lives? It's the same as Jephthah. Jephthah was trying to secure victory, yes. Deliverance, yes. Freedom, yes. But you know what he really was after? Was salvation. He really wanted salvation from his enemies, salvation from his troubles. And we're the same way. We try to secure salvation when God has already secured salvation for us. And here's the thing about salvation, because when you hear the word salvation, you automatically think about religious things, but salvation can look and feel and seem like so many different things. Here's some things that people look to for salvation. I'm going to give you a list. Being accepted by others, a life of comfort and convenience, pleasure, fame, health, wealth, independence, being right, being smart, being rich, the dream spouse, the perfect family, my intelligence, my education, my ability to make other people happy, my ability to do this and to do that. And we look at all those things and ultimately we're trying, we spend our entire lives and all of our energies trying to secure those things, thinking that they'll save us. If I only get that, then I'll be good to go. And so we try to secure our salvation by chasing all these different things. And we provide so many different things to try and secure them. In fact, if that's your salvation, you'll provide anything to get it. You'll provide your time, your energy, your effort, your family, your relationships, your money, your body, your mind, your heart. Because we're trying to secure what God has already secured by promising to provide what only God can provide. And just like Jephthah, we promise to provide one thing, never dreaming what it will actually cost us. Jephthah never thought it was going to cost him his daughter. Whether it was a sacrifice or whether it was a life of devotion, he never dreamed that. And that's what happens in our lives. We chase after salvation, whatever it looks like for you, and we promise to provide all these things, and in our wildest nightmares, we never realize how much it actually will end up costing us. Way more than we think. We try to secure what God has already secured by promising to provide what God has already provided. And here's what the gospel says to us. The gospel says this, that God secured your salvation by providing his son. God secured your salvation by providing his son to live and die in your place. Listen, we don't negotiate our way into God's salvation. You don't negotiate with God. You, you can't. What, do you, what bargaining chip do you have? You have no right. You have no claim. You have no currency. You have nothing to bring to the table. But Jesus Christ was the willing sacrifice who walked out of the door of heaven to earth and said to his father, just like Jephthah's daughter said to Jephthah, keep your promise. Do to me what you said you were going to do. Do to me whatever is necessary for you to keep your promise to be both perfectly holy and perfectly loving to your people. It sounded actually a lot like this. Not my will but your will be done. And then he got up from the garden and he walked to the cross. Why? 
to secure for you what you could not secure for yourself and to provide in your place what you could never provide, a perfect righteousness, a perfect life, and payment for your sin. And what that means for you and I this morning is this, that now, as a son and daughter of God, we can joyfully live all of our days in complete and total service and dedication to God. Not grieving the fact that we've been dedicated to God, but rejoicing that our lives are dedicated and set aside to God because he did for us what we could not do for ourselves, providing for us what we could not provide, securing for us what we could not secure. And so it causes our hearts to worship and adore the one God, the true God. Let's pray together this morning.